Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Today, we're joined by Dr. Tom Lee and his new book, Japan's Aging Peace, Pacifism and Militarism in the 21st Century, which was published earlier this year. Uh, Tom teaches and researches about Japan-U.S. relations as well as Japan's security policies at Pomona College. So this book examines the roles of militarism in Japan's decision-making of security policies. Although after the Second World War, Japan's military power was restricted for many reasons, the changes in its security policies, um, there have also been voices to remilitarize Japan. So these voices and their counterarguments, as well as the reasons behind them, are the main concern of Tom's book. So welcome to the Japanese Studies channel, Tom. Uh, well, thank you, Jingyi, for, for having me here. Excited to be here. Thank you. Um, so my introduction of your research was probably a bit too brief. Uh, what are the subjects that you study about, and how did you become interested in them? Yeah, so... You know, specifically, the, the core research is on Japanese security policy, and then looking at from the angle of demographics, how, you know, gender equality, the, the distribution of, you know, age distribution in society affects security. Uh, but broadly speaking, I'm very interested in how violence or the use of force is justified uh, internationally and domestically. And I think, you know, my interest in it comes from, you know, I'm a first generation uh, Vietnamese American. My parents were, you know, you know, boat people, you know, uh, refugees from the Vietnam War. Um, so I've had family fight in the Vietnam War. Uh, my grandparents fought in World War II and also the Korean War. So like there's a lot of war in um, my family history. So I think I'm naturally inclined to just think about like, why is it that I've had so much family fight and like die in wars? So I'm trying to you know understand the core dimensions of that. And I think Japan's an interesting case because it's a country where we see significant variance, right? It goes from a country that's, you know, relatively isolated with, you know, conflict regionally to this superpower that's like colonizing half the world brutally to a country that really hasn't fired a bullet in live combat for over 75 years. So that's interesting to me. And um, the book and my research tries to get to the bottom of that. Mm. It's nice to learn that you have such um, such a personal connection with your study subjects. Um, so could you give us a brief overview of this book and its context? Like what are, what are some of the arguments that have been made repeatedly regarding Japan's militarism, either from within Japan or outside? Yeah, so I think there's a couple dimensions to this. So first we could think about like non-academically, right? We think about the politics and security of the region. So for the Japan's former colonies, right? China, South Korea, uh, North Korea, 
Taiwan, uh, the countries in the region, there's always going to be a concern or a sensitivity to what Japan's security policy is, right? Because, you know, I think deep down, people don't expect Japan to militarize and do what it did before. And we live in a world now that would be very difficult for not somebody to step in, but they're going to be sensitive to it. So there's always going to be a concern or sensitivity to a Japanese a shift in Japanese security policy where people are going to make an argument like Japan's militarizing again. What does this mean? Uh, related to that is when people talk about Japanese militarism and the rise of the far right, it also has to do with Japan's handling of its World War II legacy, right? Is it truly apologetic? Is it sorry? Does it apologize enough? And all that gets wrapped into uh, a, a neat package of this Japan returning to this undemocratic, scary version of itself, right? And then there's the American side, security analyst side of should Japan play a bigger role in the U.S. alliance and global affairs? And also, how do we get the Japanese to buy more weapons <laughs> from the United States or military contractors, right? So there's also that argument of Japan needs to do, uh, needs to do this, uh, needs to militarize because um, there's a, a vested interest in that. Then there's the academic argument of looking at you know power balancing and regional distribution of power, and the argument is you know countries look out for themselves. So if China is on the rise and China is increasingly assertive in the region, North Korea has nuclear weapons, South Korea and Japan don't get along. It, it's logical for any country to build up its its uh, its a you know ability to defend itself. And so that's the kind of the argument that I'm really addressing. And then there's the counter argument, which is Japan is a pacifist country, right? That World War II was so terrible for them that they've just turned a new leaf. Um, and then so that argument is like, well, um, it's not within their character, right? And I, I find both arguments limited, right? One is it's really hard to ignore a wealthy country like Japan not having greater capabilities. Because I think people come up with really good reasons why Japan should have a military, and yet they, they don't have it to the degree or to the, you know, the size that people predict. And at the same time, for the pacifist culture, I think that was always overplayed, and that was part of the problem. Like, true pacifism is really hard to do, right? Like, most people, if you're going to be attacked, you're going to defend yourself. Right, that you're not a pacifist if you're willing to use violence to defend yourself. Right, a true pacifist would surrender; they would die. Right, like very few people have that strength, the moral strength to be a true pacifist. And so Japan is something else, and and I I want to you know explore that and see what it is, and also the argument that Japan is pacifistic, like for 75 years in the same exact way that that kind of doesn't make sense, right? It has to evolve over time too. So the book tries to explore the evolution of what anti-militarism looks like and how it's expressed. So what the book proposes is that the language of pacifism and militarism is like too limited that we need a, a more uh, complex view of what militarism looks like. So I argue that Japan actually is militaristic in the book, that it has a self-defense force. It's willing to use the military for certain means, but it doesn't use it in a way that many scholars predict, right? It uses it for disaster relief or very defensively compared to other states. And the public is not so gung-ho on uh, you know, missions around the world to put out the fires around the world. Right. But at the same time, they're not going to put away the fire extinguisher. 
the the complexity in this whole context is just so amazing, and so what I I have a kind of a, well when when I read news I would try to read them in multiple languages and even with the same um, topic like for example this time when Japan's hosting the Olympics and uh, many of the news media are trying to make a, a big deal about how. Um, this could signify Japan's rise in this and that. And when they're presented in, in, in well, presented in Mandarin Chinese, when in Japanese and then in English, they can have so many different interpretations. But your book uses a lot of um, numbers and you talk about these uh, constraints and restraints that it makes a very compelling case. So I'd... Um, like to get in some of the details here. Um, so you divide the factors against militarism into material ones and ideological ones, and you focus more on the material constraints for their connections with Japan's social constructs. So, for example, what material constraints are there and how they have been shaped by the Japanese society over the years. Uh, I understand that in Chapter 3, you talked about the influence of aging and the decrease of population on Japan's self-defense forces, which I found quite interesting. Could you talk more about this aspect? Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, the ideas in the physical world are are connected, right? You can't really separate the two. Uh, I lean more towards the material world matters, a lot in constructing our ideas for instance like even expressing an idea which is the kind of an abstract i still have to do it with like my voice right which is still like a, a sound wave right there everything's kind of bounded by this physical reality um and so a lot of the 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 norms or the policies that exist in japan concerning security is still bounded by the limits of the real world right so i, I think i used the line um like uh, ideas determine what is possible in terms of what you can imagine, but the physical world determines what is impossible, right? Like if you you can only jump so high, right? Because gravity is only so strong, right? So if we look at the Japanese Defense Force, there's a lot of ideas that say why Japan should be more peaceful or less peaceful or pacifistic or anti-militaristic, right? But th- that's the reason why Japan should do something. And then the next question should be like, can it do it? Right. So if there's a defense force, then you have to put people into it. But because the Japanese population is declining significantly and aging significantly, they're struggling to fill the ranks of the military. So, you know, they they can't use that to strengthen themselves. They don't have boots on the ground. And this is where ideas and the physical world interact because Japan does have more people than the 250,000 or so self-defense force members. You could put a gun in the hand of a four-year-old if you wanted, right? Uh, They have people, but we don't do that because we have laws against kids using weapons or that is against the norms of what is proper for a kid to do. In other countries in Asia, because of their colonial experience, they all practice conscription. You know, China doesn't really because it has enough volunteers and the population so big, right? That's where you can see the size of the population affecting the policies that are necessary, right? Because the population is so big. But if China wanted to do conscription, it could, right? There's nothing that prevents it from doing so. But we know Taiwan does it. We know Korea, South Korea does it. North Korea does it. And so 
even though those countries are also struggling with population decline, they fix it by just making all the men join the military. Right? Whereas Japan can't do that because the constitution forbids it. So there you see the interaction between the ideas, which is conscription, and the constitution with the physical reality. Right? So you can see how the physical reality and ideas interact differently depending on the country. And so, you know, in addition, if your population is aging and you can't fill the ranks with bodies, what you can do is improve your technology, right? buy more weapons, build better tanks. And then there you also see the country struggling because if you have a smaller uh, population, you can't tax them as much, right? There's just fewer people to tax and you have more young people having to work to pay for the social welfare programs of the old people, right? Japan is a successful country because it's a democratic country with a strong social welfare program. That's evidence of its transition. So if they can't tax people, then they can't get out of the power projection problem right and then also um they could like build better weapons right but they have laws and policies that prevent them from developing weapons that be, can be exported and used for warfare because the constitution uh kind of suggests that that should be the case so there again the the physical world is being shaped by ideas but those ideas are influenced by the physical need of having more soldiers, right? So you can see it's um, it's kind of a loop. So if you know when you read the book, you probably were thinking, oh, this I have to go back and forth a lot, and it was hard for me to kind of make sure that it's separated clearly, and at the same time explain that they're intricately connected. That's quite interesting, um, because uh, I think the the most of the previous articles or um, um, newspaper or critics on Japanese militarism, they kind of uh, divide all the reasons into things like political, cultural, economics, but yours, um, well, so I guess, so so yours, you divide the factors into material ones and ideological ones. Um, and you mentioned just now, um, I guess two to three material constraints. So, Suppose, from an ideological uh, perspective, suppose the self-defense forces had enough young people and a decent budget. Would it be easier for them to remilitarize Japan? I understand there have been um, attempts by former administrators to do so, but hypothetically, would they be able to do it? Yeah, so I argue that nothing's impossible, right? Like if Japan was invaded, remember, it's not a pacifistic country. So if they were invaded, I think even that four-year-old would pick up a gun to defend himself. Who knows? Um, so there, there is that dimension to it. But I, I, uh, of course, so if Japan had the money and the bodies, would it be easier to militarize? The answer would be yes, because it's already one step closer to having a stronger military, right? But I argue that the ideological factors constrain the options possible. So I argue in the book that Japan is militarizing now in a very specific way, which is, you know, to minimal use militarism with an emphasis on human security. So disaster relief and, and, and things like that, or maybe helping with monitoring elections, like very limited. Um, and if you look at the data, you know, everyone overs, overplays Japan's footprint abroad, but, you know, from one of the chapters, I have a table of like their UN missions. They do very few, and they they have such, they only send four people abroad at most, three hundred people. So Japan's not really that global when it comes to flexing its military uh, might. But uh, you know, ideas have a significant impact, and 
and uh, and so like you use the word culture, right? Some people use cultural reasons, and we throw that word around a lot. And and especially political scientists, when we're like the least prepared or skilled to talk about culture, right? We're not sociologists or we're not other uh, specialists, right? But you know, in the book, I talk about how peace museums are part of the culture, right? And what are peace museums? They're expressions of ideas verbally visually you know textually and physically right we talk about the monuments right and then if you're and I, I always think monuments are significant because they're an expression of what is significant in society because they cost money to build they take up space so they, they kind of dominate the landscape like think about the united states we have these big arguments about confederate statues about what they represent and people cry over it and they say this is what the country represents and it could hurt people or, or make people feel prideful. The same logic can be applied to peace museums that say, or peace monuments that say, like, we don't want to fight wars anymore, right? So if Japan has all the bodies that it needs, it has all the money that it wants, the government, or at least hawks, still have to convince the public that this is a good use of your money, right? And it's like, we have the money now, and we have the bodies, so will you want to join the military? The Japanese would likely, according to polling data, say, no, why Why would I want to do that? I'd rather work my job. I'd rather just not fight. I'd rather not die. And the money, I'd rather you fix our pension system or uh, dump it into education. Because ultimately, Japan does have enough money and bodies, like I said earlier, right? The bodies, they could just conscript people to join. But they're not going to be able to pass a constitutional amendment and get the population to support that they have the money they could just spend less on everything else that's what the united states does right we we could spend more on the education system or we could spend more on the military and we've made our choice right so that that question is uh it's it's it's, a, it's the right question to ask but like kind of we could question the logic of the question right which is you know uh the, the japanese ideological kind of tendencies is to not uh waste their blood and treasure on the military and they'd rather use it on themselves for human security uh, purposes right um i used uh nicholas onif's uh he's like the founder of constructivism and i love his argument he talks about rules and rule right uh, uh, and you know we talk about norms and policies and laws all those are the same thing they're just codified differently right they're they're just basically rules like rules are scripts that tell us how we should behave and everyone's always fighting for their rules to be the one that we all accept, right? Um, and in Japan, I argue the physical and ideological environment has created a set of rules that say that make it difficult to for a country to aggressively militarize. And what that ends up happening is a lot, it leads to rule, like to control, right? So the anti-militarism forces control the destiny of the country via the rules that they pass, the constitution, the monuments they build. And then when you have control the rules and rules, basically you ensure that you enjoy the privileges, right? So the privileges of these policies are Japanese people don't have to worry about healthcare. They have a, they, they, they expect a pension system at the end of the day. They know they don't have to go to another country and fight and die for whatever cause that's, that's big at the moment. Um, and I, that's just the way I, I see it, that the combination of these factors just makes it highly unlikely that the country will aggressively militarize to balance China, whatever that means. Yeah. That's such a great point. And while I was reading that part, I finally understood why all the um, TV commercials in Japan 
the, the commercials recruiting members for the self-defense forces, they always show scenes in the commercial that uh, the, the, the self-defense forces go into places like Fukushima or places that were hit with, by the tsunami and show how they save people rather than, well, it, let's say it's quite different from the U.S. Um, ads for recruitment. But um, reading that part, it just made so much more sense why they emphasize that aspect. Yeah. So what I'm, what I find interesting and really enjoyable is seeing people interact in their own environment, like a different country or a different context. And then it's really good at decentering my American perspective on what I consider default, right? So, you know, if you look at Japanese recruitment commercials, they're always like very peppy and like fun, bright, because that's what they believe can recruit people into the military. People aren't interested in you know, crawling in the mud and fighting scary things and watching blowing things up. Whereas if you look at American military commercials, they're very high intensity that it gets your adrenaline going and it kind of challenges your masculinity, right? Like come here and be a man or whatever. And and that, that works in this country and it draws on like certain patriotism tropes and things like that. And, And that's just a different context. But if you showed that video, the American commercial in Japan, people would just be like, what is going on here? It makes no sense. Um, and that applies to so many things, right? Watch Japanese television. And then you'll be like, this is the weirdest thing in the world. If you don't grow up watching it and they would watch American TV shows and think that they're either violent or they don't like play the office, you know, the Steve Carell TV show in another country. And half the people around the world would not want, they would not know why it's funny. They just think it's like the most painful working environment. So if we think about different contexts for different things, then we can understand why what it seems natural for us as a reaction to a rising China or whatever is less natural in another place because they have a different physical and ideational environment. Um, you know, I was, uh, I'm going to shoehorn this into this co- conversation today because I, I was talking to my wife about this and it was such a cool moment for me and I kind of want to mention it so I taught in South Korea like a bunch of third graders like 10 years ago and um uh it was like a summer camp and the the food at the camp wasn't very good and and the kids were like not happy about it so they snuck off campus and they bought a bunch of instant ramen at the grocery at the locals like uh, 7-eleven or whatever it was and they brought it back to the dorm and they started making the the ramen right they bought a bunch of individual packets and then what was the coolest thing for me as an American was all the kids, and these are third graders, and I think the oldest were in like middle school or high school. They all got all their ramen, took all the bags apart, threw it in one big pot, and cooked all the ramen together. And then the older kids just served the ramen to all the kids, you know, to everyone, and everyone had an equal share. And that makes so much sense because it's like efficient. You know, you, you put it in one big pot, you don't have to boil 10 different pots. You could just do one big one, and then everyone serves it. And then the older kid is responsible. But as an American, when I saw that, I was like, that was so weird. Like, don't you buy your own bag of ramen? You boil it yourself and you eat it in your bowl and that's yours, right? And it's because they just have a different mentality on, you know, proper behavior between each other, age responsibilities and property at the stage, right? And these are kids and working in their environment. So, you know, same thing with you know, a country on all its culture and norms. Culture really means the way a society behaves, right? What they, what defines it. So 
I, we have these models in political science that expects all countries to behave according to certain stimuli. And to an extent, we do, but the, the form that it takes can be vastly different based on the culture. So would this be what you're describing the, in the book as the normative? Right. So norms are just basically rules or policies, right? Norms are normal behavior. Um, I do argue that what's kind of sometimes not emphasized enough is like the critical dimension of normativity, right? So like, for instance, um, the norm for entering an Asian house is to like remove your shoes, Right. Um, what makes it a norm isn't just because that's like a, a, a thing that people follow. What makes it a norm is that if you were to wear shoes in someone's house when you're not supposed to, that's like incredibly disrespectful, right? It's like you're a guest and that's a kind of an offense to the host. Like why would you not, not just the consequentialist dimension of it, like why would you make their house dirty when they're trying to keep it clean? But also why would you offend a host, by not following their policy, right? Like kind of in Game of Thrones with guest right, you know? Like, you know, the, the consequentialist logic behind guest right is you should be able to meet with you know, like another house without murdering them when they're, you know, meeting. I'm kind of ruining, uh, spoiling the story. But also like, so there's the consequentialist dimension of it of like not the whole system falls apart if people just attack each other willy-nilly. But there's also the part of like someone is going to your house to feed you how could you hurt them? That seems like kind of beyond the pale. So the normativity in Japan is the anti-military. What makes it an anti-militarism norm is the country fought a reckless and pointless war. And a lot of, you know, this is where John Dower, the historian, does a great job of explaining how there's like survivor's guilt amongst the survivors, right? The, that these teachers convinced their kids to go out fighting an enemy that really wasn't as brutal or cruel as they said right and then after all that and the country losing so much so many lives and just falling backwards that the country has enjoyed peace for 75 years and then all of a sudden you're going to try to convince people to go fight in wars again and spend their money on that when the country has enjoyed such prosperity that seems wrong to to want to to rebuild the military that's like the normative kind of dimension of the anti-militarism norm Hmm. That's quite interesting. So, as the title of your book indicates, aging is an important concept throughout this whole book. But you're not only talking about literal aging as in growing old. Um, you use this to describe the whole situation of Japan's militarism as well. So what are the meanings have you given aging in this book? And where is it situated in your in- entire argument? How does it connect with all these other uh, factors that you have just mentioned? Yeah, um, I have to thank Robert Hellier for the title. He was a kind of advisor, a mentor of mine when I was doing a Japan Foundation summer camp. And he's like, He's a historian, and the historians are much better writers than political scientists. It's just like objectively proven. Uh, it's it's like kind of scientifically proven. Uh, so well, thank I was, you. It, 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 yeah, and he was like, uh, "Your title, my original title, was really boring. It was constraints and restraints on Japanese militarism. It was just like ah, it's like kind of a a manual or something." And then he's like, "How about aging peace? That works." And I was like, "Ah, that does sound good." Um, and so. 
aging does have multiple dimensions, right? We could talk about literally the population aging and the and the, the defense forces getting older. Um, and also, I want I, I I talk about it in chapter six about the aging peace groups too, right? I mean, as the peace groups get older, their message is going to change, right? What happens when the original survivors of the atomic bomb are no longer there to tell their story? Uh, then the narrative shifts a little bit. And then we could talk about the aging infrastructure, right? If buildings and planes don't get replenished or replaced or refurbished, uh, then that's aging as well, right? Um, And then kind of to wrap it all up, the idea of what peace and anti-militarism and security can age as well. So I, I kind of compare aging of Japan's peace, like aging of wine and cheese, right? That those items can get older, but what makes the the taste and the smell distinct, you know, it changes with age, right? Uh, I don't drink wine, actually, so I don't know. I, I used analogy in the, the book without even understanding what wine tastes like, but I'm told that the taste gets better when it's older uh, and cheese gets stronger, you know? Um, and so for Japan, over 75 years of this, you know, anti-militarism ethic, that message changes as well, right? Like at the early days of the war, the feelings of anti-military were very strong. And then over time, you know, as the self-defense force does an, an admirable work saving lives, you know, at the 311 triple disaster or the Kobe earthquake or and other disasters, the concept of, you know, what uh, the role of the military can age as well, right? That takes on a character itself and then also as the country gets wealthier right like at the early years it was just like making sure you could put rice in your bowl so you don't starve because of scarcity after the war and then by the time you get to the 80s it you know wealth was about like you know extravagant displays of wealth during the bubble right everyone had their bmw or gold you know necklace or whatever it is right and then now you look at many Japanese, and especially the younger generation, their idea of quality life is like a slower pace, higher quality goods, less environmental impact, right? And so their idea of what security means has aged as well, right? And what I argue is that aging brings wisdom. And what is wisdom if not just doing things more efficiently and with less pain, right? We look at that with athletes, right? Um, look at Michael Jordan in his prime, right? Uh, he was like a basketball player, right? And you know, in his prime in the like late 80s, early 90s, he would just use raw power to s- score a point, right? He gets, he's faster than everyone. He jumps higher. He's kind of more skilled. And then his, you know, second set of titles between 94 and 90, what was 96 and 98? Um, uh, he was called wiser. And then people say, you pick your shots, right? So instead of just like running straight towards the basket and shooting, he would take his time, find an easy shot and not have to work his body so hard. And we see that with Japan, right? Now that the country is physically older, the bodies are older and there's fewer bodies, a wiser, more aged Japan is like, we do need a military, but we should probably use it for disaster relief because there seems to be floods all the time now, right? Also, um, we only have 250,000 or so bodies, Um Every life is precious. So do we really want to get into a fight in the Middle East where even the United States can't win with its more bodies and more firepower? How about we're a bit more judicious with how we send um, uh, people out into the field, right? So I think 
um, the aging has made the country a bit wiser in how it wants us use its uh, blood and treasure. Fascinating. And towards the end of the book, you went into depth to discuss the security policies during the Abe administration, during Abe Shinzo's time. Now that, well, we, we kind of mentioned earlier that there had been attempts to um, mod- modify the constitutions that stopped to that stops Japan from militarizing. But now that Suga has replaced Abe for quite a while, and Suga is also facing being replaced, perhaps, uh, in this coming fall, what changes have you observed in the remilitarism ecosystem, as you call it? Or um, what transformations have there been? Yeah, so... Yeah, you know, on Abe... You know, who, you know, Tobias Harris, uh, he wrote this book called The Iconoclast that came out last year. Um, that basically is kind of, I would say, like the Bible on Abe, right? So he would, that would be a good resource for uh, listeners to check out to kind of understand Abe and his vision. Uh, you know, in my book, uh, it's less about like the domestic politics as much, right? Uh, at least the elite level, because I look at the constraints on them. Um, and I'm not so interested on like the day-to-day uh, security policy changes because um, I don't find them that significant. I have like a longer term view, right? In the second chapter, I, I, st- I think I start from uh, kind of Tokugawa period, not really, but basically Meiji until the present, right? So I have a kind of a longer view of, uh, of these trends. Um, but the argument I make is that Abe, if anyone was going to make these big changes, it was going to be Abe, right? He, w- he had the time. He was actually there for uh, like over a thousand days. You know, he was the longest serving prime minister and he had uh, the kind of uh, charisma is a weird word to use for Abe, but he had like uh, the the kind of a, the political uh, skill to kind of gain support and kind of wrangle his party. And and, and he had a, a clear vision on how much he wanted it, right? And yet he couldn't get constitutional revisions, right? And that's the big thing because ultimately it has to go through the public and the public in a democracy is going to vote against a revision. Um. But, I mean, that's not to say Japan didn't have these major changes, right, that I mentioned in the book, that now Japan can do weapons development. You know, it's more limited and they're struggling with it, right? I talk about in the book how even though the the new rule says they can make weapons, 75 years of aging and not selling weapons really sets you behind all the other major players, right? They don't know how to make the good weapons. They don't know how to sell them for cheap. And especially since Japan makes everything expensive, they, they can't do it at scale, right? And, the, and then, again, you can look at the population again and, and all these kind of things uh, on how it affects that, right? And so, yeah, that's a change in the policy that's, I think, a big deal. Um, military spending really has gone unchanged. Everyone plays that data point up, but Japanese military spending has been stagnant. Uh, it has not gone up, uh, especially if you take into account inflation and how much everyone else in the region is spending. Um, then you could look at the new, the updated U.S.-Japan like defense guidelines. That's a pretty big change. I think it, it clarifies Japan's role um, more, and it asks Japan to do more. Uh, Abe made like adjustments to collective defense, right? So that, that, there's an argument to be made for the what we would call realists. They're not wrong when they point to there's been changes to Japanese security policy, and that's why I always default back to these are great ideas does the physical reality match? And ultimately I say no, because everyone's too old, right? Uh, so now we could turn to Suga. So if Abe, if we could call him charismatic, and that's really being generous, Suga would be 
anti-charisma, right? Because he's the kind of the classic bureaucrat or like kind of like kind of a long-term insider that just kind of stuck around and didn't ruffle feathers. And now he's like the leader. I haven't heard his vision of the military. I mean, if anything, he's continuing what Prime Minister Abe would like, but he's been weighed down unfairly, right, by the pandemic, right? Like that's just kind of a, a, a unfair uh, obstacle for every government right now, right? There's a global pandemic. Well, they chose to host the Olympics, right? So like all the money that could be going to other things is going into useless stadiums and testing for foreigners who are in the country to run around real fast. And I love the Olympics, right? I, I, I teach a sports and politics class. I, I do like sports and politics, but because I do, I understand the absurdity of this big party we throw every four years to watch people run fast. Like animals run for fun. Like we don't, we don't need to do this. We don't have to spend billions of dollars to watch people run. Um, and so like Suga is in no position to push controversial things like the military and actually enact major changes when the country is so mad at him already for hosting the Olympics and spending all this money uh, on this event, right? And it's not even his vision. Like, he doesn't care for it in the same kind of way. So um, I don't see any major changes uh, going under Suga, you know, and like, as you mentioned, he might not even last, right? Um, so who are the possible replacements? There's really no one that's that would replace uh, Suga that would be more passionate about remilitarizing or normalizing Japan or whatever the language people use all the time uh, than, than Abe was. And I am, I put money down that there's not going to be a prime minister that's going to last as long as Abe for another 150 years. Like what he did was kind of amazing. Right. And so, you know, the average prime minister in Japan lasts like 150 days or something like that. So uh, no, uh, there's not going to be any changes. Now that you mentioned the Olympics, and by the way, I completely agree with what you said about the Olympics. Um, do you think um, during this entire process of applying for and prepare for the Olympics, which was during Abe's time, and then delaying and hosting the Games during a pandemic uh, towards which the Japanese government didn't seem to have prepared so well or not taking super strong measures. Um, do you think all the, these would have an impact on Japan's approach to national security, um, both for the Japanese government and for the ordinary people living in Japan? And if so, in what ways do you think these would have impact on? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so like when we talk about security, there's like international security, like conceptually, right? Or like state sovereignty, right? Like when people say Japan should militarize to balance China, I mean, like if we ever think these things out, like or against North Korea, it's like you're, you're building up your military to stop a nuclear power of a billion people from invading you. That even doesn't even make sense, right? The, the logic is you can hurt them enough where they're not willing to attack you. That's kind of the logic. Or North Korea, what can you do to stop North Koreans from using their nuclear weapons on you and invading you? So that's, when we talk about security in IR, that's mostly what we focus on. So Japan's going to have more troops or better weapons. But when it comes to hosting the Olympics in general, the security that you do there is kind of domestic 
security against, say, like terrorism or something like that, right? That's what hosting the Olympics is kind of useful for, right? You you have to do like security measures to make sure there's not a terrorist attack. But like hosting the Olympics, you know, and like regulating border control, right? And then pandemic testing, like COVID testing, like none of that's going to stop China and North Korea from dropping a nuclear weapon, right? Like that's just, it's unrelated, right? So I think it's kind of useful in, in like maybe dealing with domestic insecurity issues like terrorism or a pandemic, but it would have nothing to do with kind of global security. And then when it comes to like, is the state functioning properly? Like a well-functioning state that can control different dimensions of society. I guess that broadly speaking is good for war, but it's all like kind of detached or distracted. I, I don't see the Olympics really relating anything um, to dealing with China. I mean, if we think about this uh, in the most like kind of concrete way, Nicholas Ona have this real, has a really good argument in his book, and I think people ignore it because it's like a throwaway line. His his books are great, but they're so dense, and it's easy to miss stuff. His footnotes are longer than the main text. He's kind of like the David Foster Wallace <laughs> of like academia or something. Um, but he says that if you think about like how do we measure power, right? We measure it based on like how many weapons you have and how much money you have, right? That's like kind of the base measurement. He argues that. Technically speaking, if a country goes to war, it has to like use its bullets and use its bombs. It's now less militaristic, right? Because they have less of it. They just used it, right? Uh, and that's why I think it's absurd to think that militarism is just basically how much stuff you have. Because like if you're using your weapons, you're clearly being militaristic because you're killing but somebody. But if you're using the traditional measures of how powerful a country is, you're now weaker because you just use these weapons and bullets that you're not replacing. And so... You know, if Japan is hosting the Olympics and spent, what, a couple billion dollars on the Olympics, they actually are less militaristic because they could have used that to buy like an aircraft carrier, right? Or pay higher salaries and recruit more people, right? So like, if you think about it in like kind of those terms of just where you're spending their money, remember, it's rules, rule and privilege, right? The government made the decision, you know, it didn't have to host the Olympics, Right. Abe wanted that for whatever reason, too. So seven years ago, he could have just been like, let's use that money for something else. But Japan made the decision that hosting this big sports event was more important than like its state security. Right. Or, or whatever it is. So like I, I, I just don't think, um, you know, that, that has much to do with it. You know? That's such an interesting way to view it. I mean, I thought. From from the from the information I could gather from Japanese media, it felt like Japan, or at least Japanese people, ordinary people, they didn't think it, Japan. They didn't think Japan had a choice in canceling the Olympics or insisting on hosting it because they had the contract with the International Olympics Committee. But then, was this layer with what? What this layer? What you just talked about? It's for me. It, it's it, it means more complicated. Um, I guess future impact, at least for the people, rather yeah. than the yeah. I mean, I, I there, Japan was pressured to host it, right? I, I, I kind of put more blame on the uh, on the IOC than on Japan. I, I feel terrible for Japan. You know, as much as I thought the Olympics were a huge waste of money. I'll be honest, in 2013, when they were given the Olympics and when they had the opening ceremony in Rio. 
you know, I'm a Japan specialist. I love Japan. I think the culture is cool and I, I love video games and whatever, you know, that comes out. I was like, wow, this is going to be a fun party. Kind of a waste of money. But if they're going to do it, I'm going to enjoy it. You know, I, w- I would have gone to Olympics if it was normal. So I feel really bad for the Japanese people, right? They spent the money and they can't even enjoy the party. So I think it, it's kind of a, it's awful for Japan. Um, but when it comes to, did Japan have to do it? No, right? Because like what the IOC is not going to invade Japan. And the, the, the like, IOC officials aren't going to drag runners across the stadium and make them run and, and stuff like that, right? Like Japan could have just said no and then pay the penalty, right? Like that, you, that, that is an option. It might be an painful option, but that's not making you do it. We, we do that all the time, right? Someone can um, get a parking ticket and then you could choose not to pay and you just like have a bigger fee or you got to go to court or whatever. But like when we use the word make, we, you know, often it's like kind of like if we just like play it out, what are the options? So let's say this, you know, this wasn't the topic of our, uh, the book, but this is kind of a fun conversation we're having, right? And so like, um, let's say the IOC forced Japan and Japan pressed it and be like, you know what? We're not going to do it. Our public doesn't want to do this Olympics. People are suffering. It's going to cost a ton of money. Let us delay for two more years or, you know, uh, you know, you know, the summer and winter Olympics were hosted in the same year until like only like 20 years ago, right? Like the IOC changes rules, right? It canceled the Olympics during World War II. Like, it's not like these things are set in stone. Like there are, there is like wiggle room. So what if Japan and Suga said, you know what, we're either not going to host this Olympics at all, or if we're going to do it, we're going to wait another year until it's safe. And if you're going to fine us, we'll either pay it or we're going to embarrass you and then we're going to put the ioc in a position now where it's going to force countries to do the olympics in the middle of a pandemic that would put good luck to the ioc finding other countries that will host or it would force the ioc to have to negotiate better contracts with other countries in the future but japan didn't do that right because it didn't want to pay the cost or maybe the government really wanted to do the olympics or it's just a sunk cost fallacy it's like oh we did it we paid so we might as well do it right so like you know i don't think japan was like forced to do it I think the cost-benefit analysis came out a certain way, but no one makes you do anything. Then that's the thing about pacifism, right? Then going back to the book is why Japan's not really pacifistic because, you know, the the, the natural argument in international relations is if somebody attacks you, the natural thing to do is to attack attack back. That's actually the the basic logic of deterrence. It's considered a rational theory because, you know, from nuclear weapons, if a country uses nuclear weapons on you, the natural thing for you to do is to use nuclear weapons on them, and then somehow that prevents everybody from using nuclear weapons, right? That's completely irrational, because if somebody used nuclear weapons on you, your country would be suffering. The logical thing to do would probably be to surrender and come to terms, right? It's like, you don't have to always use violence, right? We And then so, if someone attacks you, you can defend yourself. You could use violence back, but you don't have to hurt them. That's a choice that you made, right? It's a hard choice and it's a pacifistic choice. And most people can't do it because it, it's such a high burden, but it is still a choice. And so I think oftentimes in IR, we take that choice away and the default is violence. And my research really tries to understand how do we justify it? Well, we justify it because the state is the most important thing in the world or borders are the most important thing or some random island in the middle of the South China Sea or the Pacific Ocean is the most important thing. We come up with these rationalizations, right? 
even though 99.9% of the people on the planet will never step a foot on the Senkaku Islands, right? Or, or Dokdo or anything like that, right? Yet we come up with these rationalizations all the time because like, well, if they take this island, they're going to take Okinawa next and then they're going to take Okinawa, they're going to take mainland Japan, right? But if you work it out, it's, that makes no sense uh, at all, right? I don't think anyone in China, the mainland's thinking, look, okay, like if, we, if we get Senkaku first, then we'll take Okinawa and then we'll take, the, like, we'll take Japan. Like it doesn't make sense. Uh, but in, in IR, we just default to the violence is the solution to any disagreement. And it, that makes no sense to me. Yeah, that, that that's wonderful. I think your book is a, is a really great counter argument to those conspiracy theory believers that, well, they're just not rational. And you made me realize, actually, political science is way more interesting than I thought it would have been. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. Uh, maybe the, the, my, my ramble at the end is not even political science anymore. I think there's going to be a lot of political scientists who listen to this. I'm like, now he's just making stuff up. <laughs> Hopefully the people will read the book and they find like the evidence that I draw uh, supportive of my conclusions. Yes, please, uh, if, if you disagree with uh, anything that... Tom did just said, or if you wanted to find out more about uh, the the militarism in Japan, make sure you check out uh, Dr. Tom Lewis and his new book, Japan's Aging Peace, Pacifism and Militarism in the 21st Century. I am Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you in our next episode.